Hello again. Welcome to Tell Me. Today's conversation is with Nithya Raman, who's a city councilwoman here in Los Angeles representing District 4. And you may be wondering, why am I interviewing a local politician for this podcast that goes everywhere? Well, there's a few reasons, but basically everybody always wants to know what's going on in Hollywood, who's dating who, you know, what happened on this set, what happened on that set. But the truth is Hollywood is experiencing a crisis of homelessness as we are globally, certainly everywhere in the United States. Everybody has seen the effects of the pandemic. And I just think Nithya is a very smart woman. And I really wanted to hear her take on what's going on. And I brought along my friend, who you all may know from Grey's Anatomy, Giacomo Giannotte. I brought him along today because not only is he my dear friend, but Giacomo has volunteered with the homeless youth here in Hollywood as long as I've known him. I've always admired his selflessness, and he's really spent time reaching out to the homeless youth here in Hollywood. So I thought he would be a great partner for today's episode. So I'm happy to spend time with him and hope you enjoy the conversation. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Nithya. Hi, how are you? I'm so well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. It's been a long week. It's been a long week. Nithya, this is my friend Giacomo Gianotti. Hi, nice to meet you. Hello, nice to meet you. Giacomo is a good guest to have on with Nithya because Giacomo has spent a lot of time boots on the ground with an organization here in Los Angeles called My Friend's Place, which dedicates services to homeless youth here in Hollywood. So I'm I'm happy to be with both of you today. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And it's funny, Nithya, because so the story goes, I met Nithya at a friend's house a few years ago when she was running and she spoke so eloquently and has this, you know, amazing degree in urban planning from Harvard and also has a degree from MIT, I believe. And we went out in Canvas together, knocked on some doors and tried to meet some people. I don't know what your takeaway from that experience was, Nithya, but I thought people couldn't have been more rude to us. Um, <laughs> I was shocked at how smart and eloquently you were able to state your position. And I just was like, wow, politicians really have it very hard because it's like people just genuinely are not nice. But anyway, you know, I didn't really know that you grew up in Boston and prepping for this. Of course, I knew you went to Harvard and MIT, but I did not realize that you actually hail from the mean streets of the bean like myself. <laughs> Where did you grow up? 
I grew up in a suburb, so I wish I was cool enough to have actually grown up in the city, but I grew up in a suburb called Burlington and was always, you know, taking the bus and the train to go into Cambridge and Boston to hang out. But yeah, wish I had spent more time there. (laughs) Well, I'm from a town called Everett, which was a little closer to the city. So I'm a slightly rougher around the edges than you are. Burlington, to be fair, had that big mall. But when I was there, it wasn't particularly fancy. I feel like we would always be up in track meets up against like Reading and Lexington, where they had a big track and a lot of money in their high schools. And we would always be kind of (laughs) meekly competing. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to go back to our initial meeting and when you were running. So cut to now. Let me just preface by saying, so Nithya is a council person for District 4 here in Hollywood. And in California or Los Angeles, the city council has more power than the mayor, as opposed to like a city like New York, where the mayor has more power than the city council. So now that you're in the job, What are you good at that you didn't think you would be good at? And what are you bad at that you thought you'd kind of have in the bag? Or did you think you would have anything in the bag? What are the surprises so far being in the job? You know, it's been a really strange time to take office. When people say, what have you been surprised by or what didn't you expect about going into office? I will say nothing about the time that I took office was expected. So when I started, it was the height of the surge in Los Angeles County, Nobody was coming into City Hall at all. People were just staying at home. I hired a staff. Now I have about 26 people on my team and we're still hiring more. But my initial entire set of hires were all done through Zoom. And we didn't even meet each other in person for a few weeks after we started. So bad was the surge. And so, you know, so strange was that moment of taking office that I would say a lot of what I've experienced has not just been surprising or unexpected for me. I think the very nature of being in government during COVID has been surprising and unexpected for everybody who has been involved with it. And so everything has surprised me to some extent. But I've been really happy over these last few months, especially after June 15th when we opened up again, and to be able to be out in the field, to be doing field visits and backyard discussions and constituent services face-to-face. That is really the best part of the job and something I When I was in high school in Burlington, Mass, I used to work at a coffee shop and did customer service, and I was really good at it. You know, I was really good at being the best server in that coffee shop. And I want to provide that same service in in the council office, and we're really working hard to get there. So I didn't, I actually didn't expect that part of the job would bring me so much joy, but it really has. You said something that I read that really struck a chord with me. When you're not in power, it's very easy to criticize the people in power. But when you're actually in power, you have to work with people and you have to work with other powerful people. So the nuance of having to be in power and work with other people in power is a very delicate balance. I think that it's a really good point that you make, that it's very easy to criticize people in power. You know, whether it's a city council person, whether it's a mayor, whether it's a president, The nuances of having to deal with other people in power is something that gets lost in all the criticizing. It's so easy to criticize. And especially now with social media, you can just fire off anything you want. We should all just take a pause before we criticize people in power, because I don't think it's easy to be in a powerful position, regardless of how long you've been in power. Yeah. And I think one of the most interesting things about this particular job, which I think a lot of people don't know about it, or a lot of people don't understand the scope of it in some ways when they're providing criticism of what a council person has to do. 
mm-hmm. is that this is a job where we have these big staffs. We have some of the biggest staffs of any elected representative. And a big part of that is because so much of our work is actually just constituent services, working with city departments, trying to make the machinery of the city go round. And that means calling up the Department of Sanitation, calling up the Bureau of Street Services when a sidewalk has not been repaired for a really long time, trying to fix a broken street lamp. All of these things are things that my office takes care of on a regular basis. And we do as much of that work as the legislative work, as any of the kind of the more global policy kind of work. And so in that way, we're really different from congressional reps. You know, they have pretty small staffs and a lot of their job is to be thinking about change and to be trying to enact change through legislation. Whereas a lot of my work is just trying to make the city work better on a very, very basic level. And particularly on things, you know, things like the issue of homelessness, for example, there is no city department that's dedicated to homelessness. All of that coordination work, everything that has to respond to homelessness in our city, all of that has to run through our council office, Mm -hmm. including our relationship with big departments like sanitation, like LAPD. And so for me, it's like I have to not just put forward the legislation, create the change I want to see, but continue to have relationships with departments so that I can make the work go forward in the district and really get results for constituents. And so it's a complicated job. And I think the fact that there's so many different aspects of it, I think is something that people don't always recognize when they're being critical of it. You know, I really wanted to talk to you for so many reasons. The truth is, is everyone always wants to know what's happening in Hollywood, right? So <laughs> everyone wants to know who's dating who and, yeah. you know, what movies are coming out and who didn't <laughs> get along on what set of what movie. But I'm telling you, this is right in Hollywood, people. Like, this is what's happening in Hollywood. All that other stuff is going on, like all the fabulous stuff and all of that <laughs> shit is going down. But truly what's happening in the city where we live is we have an incredible problem with unhoused people, mm-hmm. which is causing a trash problem, causing trash fires. Our police are, you know, stressed and overworked. And this is a huge economy where we're all making millions of dollars. We all have, you know, fame and attention and everything that people in the entertainment industry, right, come here to chase our dreams. This is the land of dreams. This is where you come And so many of us have been given an opportunity and the luxury to be able to do that and to actually succeed. And then all around us is people who can't even get a bed to sleep in. Mm -hmm. And our government, any government or a federal government just doesn't set up this country in a way that supports people with mental illness, that supports people with drug addiction. We focus so much on capitalism and we don't focus on basic services that we really need for human beings just to survive and live. Forget about thrive. Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. There's a real class war here in Los Angeles that we're faced with every day. And it's a real challenge, nothing like what the challenges the homeless people face, obviously, but how to speak to your kids about it. You have children, I think, the same age that I do. You know, this is something that we all deal with. We all have to try to pitch in and have these difficult conversations to be a part of the solution if we can at all. And if that just means me using my platform to let you be heard and you state the way you think about things and the challenges that you face, I'm just trying to promote a little empathy and understanding. Yeah, Giacomo is someone who's literally given so many hours of his time 
actually volunteering with people that are unhoused. And he's actually the only person that I know who I have seen do the work hour after hour, spending time with young people, trying to inspire them, putting together lunches. So thanks, Giacomo, for doing your part, for sure. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I think a lot of people have been calling, you know, the homelessness crisis in Los Angeles, sort of an invisible crisis, but it's really only invisible to people who live outside of Los Angeles and only see Los Angeles and Hollywood through this lens that you describe, which is, you know, the tabloids and movies and all these kinds of things. If you live in Los Angeles, like when I moved here seven years ago, I was immediately struck in the face with what Los Angeles really is, which is it's not an invisible crisis at all. It's staring you in the face. If you live here, if you spend time in Hollywood, there's not a direction you can look in where you don't see someone who is homeless. And if you go to the underpasses, any kind of like more, you know, larger public areas, you're gonna see encampments, you're gonna see tents. The problem keeps growing. The pandemic has exacerbated this crisis as you I'm sure are very aware of. You said something really important, which is that there's no specific district or, you know, part within your government that is specifically tasked with dealing with the homelessness crisis. Therefore, I imagine there can be a lot of passing of the buck, uh, not only within the politics, but also from outside, from the population saying, you know, who's really responsible, who's actually getting these things done. So I know that there was some information about you from when you were working within, I think, the counselor's office that was sort of as a financial advisor to the mayor and the city. You were noticing that the budgets in terms of, I think it was $100 million, and you wrote a report saying that not only $90 million was actually spent on persecuting, arresting, and putting away yes. homeless people, and only 10%, $10 million was actually allocated to helping homeless people, doing outreach, guiding them to resources and, and shelters. So now that you've had a chance to sort of move up within this government and have a little bit more of a seat at the table, how are some ways that you feel like you can influence the change of that budget and influence sort of not just, you know, spending money better, but also influencing these people that you hired and bring on to to create a new culture of how we see homelessness in Los Angeles? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, one of the biggest things has been watching how the whole system of homelessness plays out. And now I get to see it from the inside. And Mm -hmm. I will tell you that as an outsider, and, you know, we talked earlier about how we shouldn't criticize as much because the Mm -hmm. jobs are tough, but I was a critic. I was a huge, huge critic. And I still am a critic, but now I'm on the inside trying to make the change that I want to see happen. And I want to talk a little bit about the ways in which our system is really broken, even today. Mm -hmm. So that report that I wrote, that was in 2014. 
And back then, we spent so little money on homelessness. It was astounding. Even then, we had tens of thousands of people on our streets living primarily in Skid Row, in Hollywood, and on the beaches. Today, that number has grown so much more, and people who are experiencing homelessness are in every neighborhood of this city. And even as that number grew, we didn't really increase the amount of money that we were spending on this issue until just a couple of years ago. Through two measures, we started spending more money at the county level and at the city level. At the county level through Measure H, we started spending much more money on services. And at the city level, we started spending more on building housing for people experiencing homelessness. But the thing is that we just started those changes. Mm -hmm. We literally just started spending the kind of money that we should have been spending for a very, very long time. What was holding that back, do you think? So a huge part of what was holding that back was where homelessness was in L.A. So because homelessness was really isolated, it was isolated to just a couple of neighborhoods and wealthier people, people who had more power and more influence in the city, they were able to be in neighborhoods where they didn't have to see people experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. For them, it was not a visible problem that they had to interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I think for them, it was not top of mind. It was not the key issue that they needed to address. But if you went downtown, if you went to certain parts of Hollywood, if you went to the beaches, it was unignorable. Of course. But I think we let that situation continue for a really long time because there was no demand that the city address it in a very substantive way. And what happened is that we didn't do enough for a really long time. Over the past couple of years, we've started spending more money. But the systems that we've put into place to respond to homelessness are still really just a patchwork. And we're still building something that works effectively to address people's needs. So let me talk about one incident that happened to me a couple of weeks ago in our district. So I saw somebody who was experiencing homelessness in an encampment in our district who was having a mental health crisis. They were throwing things. They were yelling very loudly. I was worried about them. I didn't mm -hmm. know him. It was not somebody I had encountered before, nor had anybody on my staff. But they were clearly visibly in distress, not at the level where I felt like 911 intervention was needed, like they weren't, didn't look like they were going to harm anybody else or themselves, but they were uncomfortable. They were unwell. So I called a mental health crisis team from the county, and I gave a report. I said, hi, you know, I'm here on the corner of these two streets and there's somebody here who needs a crisis response team. And the person on the other end of the line told me, well, you know, we're really backed up. We're still responding to calls from yesterday and I'll take your information and I'll give you a call back. And no one ever called me back. Did they suggest calling the police? They asked whether that person was at imminent risk or whether somebody else was at risk. And when they heard that they were not, they didn't suggest calling the okay. police. They just said, we'll take your information and we'll call you back. And I said, all right. But I never got a call back from them. And I said, this person needs help, obviously. So I'm going to call my contacts at the Department of Mental Health, because even though I'm at the city, I have contacts at the County Department of Mental Health. So I called. And I said, look, I met this individual on the streets. They need support. Can you come out and take a look? So somebody came out from a team called the Home Team, which is a homelessness-related mental health response team, right, designed exactly for this kind of situation, or so I thought. Those individuals came out and they evaluated him and they evaluated a couple of other people. And the answer that my team got when after this team came and visited was that none of these individuals, although they were incredibly unwell, although they were really suffering from mental illness, none of them qualified for the kind of services that this home team was offering. They were not sick enough. Basically, they were telling me they have to get sicker before we can serve them. And so I said, that's crazy. So now... I called another person from an incredible team called Housing for Health at the county. 
And they have these multidisciplinary teams which are supposed to be doing outreach to people who are exactly at this level of illness. And I called and inquired about the teams that were supposed to be serving this area. And I realized they hadn't visited this individual either. And so it was only through my office being a squeaky wheel that now we're going to start getting visits regularly from this multidisciplinary team that's supposed to be serving this person who is suffering from mental illness. Without my office, that would have never happened. That's not how a system is supposed to work. No, It shouldn't take the intervention of a council office or a council member personally calling people in their network to try and get help for people who are experiencing homelessness on the streets and suffering from mental illness. That system is still deeply broken. And we've added more resources to it, but we need to do more to make it function in the way that it needs to function in order to really address the needs of people who are living on the streets. And I don't think a lot of people would have had the persistence to keep going through all the the motions that you were going, like, okay, this person's not helping. Okay, what's the next? And calling, and they failed them as well, calling a new, like, I don't think a lot of people would have gone through all those steps and that trouble to help that individual. And it, like you said, it shouldn't be that hard for people in our city, there should be a number. It should be, you know, it should be easy to take care of something like that. And honestly, the reason I could make those calls was because people were taking my calls because I'm an elected representative. Of course. Right? When I was a volunteer in my neighborhood trying to do the same thing for individuals experiencing homelessness in my neighborhood. You couldn't get through. I didn't get that service, right? But that's not a system. That is a deeply, deeply broken system. And we have to do the work to build the system that needs to really exist in order to be able to respond to this issue. And so that multidisciplinary team, which is now coming, we actually secured funding for the first time for our district for a multidisciplinary team that will be assigned to this district. So in a couple of months, when that team is hired up and online, I will be able to call my own multidisciplinary team when I see someone. And I will be able to ensure that the multidisciplinary team that's assigned to our district is not just coming when they're called, but doing that proactive outreach to see who are the people who are not well and how do we go to them and get them the help that they need. Before it becomes a crisis. Before it becomes a crisis, yes. And that's the kind of system building work that every person who is within the city and within the county needs to be doing in order to solve this problem. And that's what we are doing. That's what I'm doing in my own office. And I think we are slowly doing it as a county, as a city. It's not moving anywhere near fast enough to address this crisis, but that's what we need to be doing. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. 
Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Well, your degree in urban planning certainly didn't prepare you for this. <laughs> no, <laughs> not what I thought I would be doing. <laughs> it's interesting. It's just like any career. I think if you go to, you know, school for theater, you can learn about the classics and you can learn about technique and all of these things. But no one shows you what to do when you get on set. You know, no one shows you how to find your light or how to hit your mark or any of those things. And I think it's important for young people to understand that college and school is the foundation. But then you really do need to go out and pursue this job or that job and this job and that job to find what you do like and what you are good at. And from every experience you have, you will learn things that will take you to the next place. But you should be constantly learning in every situation because it's not like you have all these expensive degrees and this level of intelligence and then you get into this job that's just constantly challenging and constantly problem solving and having to do it all while frustrated, I'm sure. Yeah, it's, you know, all the frustrations that pushed me to run for this seat. You know, I think I mentioned this when we met a couple of years ago. I never thought I would be running for office. And I don't think I would run for any other office. I'm an urban planner by training. I love cities. And not only do I love cities, I love Los Angeles. And I think what's exciting about LA is what brought both of you to LA and what the promise of LA is, which is that you can come here and as long as you work your butt off, you can go somewhere here. And this city will welcome you and it will make you feel really at home here. And it did that for me. And that's why I, I want to give back to it and I want to try and fix the problems here. But I think that's exactly right. Like, no education prepares you for this. All you got to do is work your ass off. <laughs> and learn every day. So how long is the job of city council? How long are you elected for? It's a four-year term. Mm -hmm. So how do you go forward now? Do you have a sort of short-term plan and a long-term plan or like? Yes. You know, we have a short-term and a long-term plan on a lot of different things. I can talk to you about my short and long-term plan on homelessness for sure. I think in the short term, we build the system that we need in order to respond to exactly the kind of crisis that I described earlier. We build a system that can go out to every encampment, that knows everybody by name, that makes sure that when we have a housing opportunity, that we are able to transition people quickly into that housing. And that's the kind of system that we need to be building. Over the medium and the long term, we absolutely need to find more housing. Without housing for people to move into, without shelter opportunities for people to move into, we will not be able to end this crisis. And so we're working on that in our office through pushing for more affordable housing opportunities, looking for apartment buildings and old hotels to purchase through state funding that's coming in through the Recovery Act, looking for opportunities in every part of the city to expand the number of options that people have to go indoors. Because without that, we will never, ever be able to find a long-term solution to this. Two questions. How do you make mentally ill people stay if you were able to find housing? How do you make them if they're in need of medication? And I'd love to talk about the drug addiction and that problem because that goes hand in hand with the homelessness. Yeah. So for mental illness, I think obviously it's an incredible challenge. So I always say that affordable housing is at the root of this crisis. It explains so much of why there's been such a rise in homelessness over the last few years. Housing prices have gone through the roof. Inventory is low in L.A. Mm -hmm. And when people who are facing existing vulnerabilities in their life, 
whether it is domestic violence, which is often a precursor to homelessness, whether it is mental illness, whether it is substance abuse, whether it's a period of any other kind of illness, when you face that vulnerability and you can't afford to pay your rent, in an affordable housing crisis, you lose your home and you don't find another one. That wasn't what was happening a few years ago, even in L.A. You know, we just had more housing. It was more plentiful. And people were, I think, able to stay housed. So to me, that in many ways explains a lot about why we're seeing a rise in homelessness. But the things that lead to homelessness are things like mental illness, are things like domestic violence incidents, are things like substance abuse issues. And I think those are things that the system really needs to grapple with. You asked about mental illness. I think when you are encountering somebody who is suffering from mental illness, who is experiencing homelessness, often you don't encounter acceptance of services the first time you meet them, right? That person may require repeated interactions. What that individual needs is an opportunity to build a relationship of trust with a mental health caseworker who's coming out there and meeting them. And they may say no the first time, they may say no the second time, but there will be a moment when they say, yes, I want services, I want mental health support, I want to get on medication. And I think those are the moments that we need to make sure that the system is able to find. Because I've seen that happen myself on the streets. I've seen it happen where someone who is very ill says, I need help and takes that help. Once they go indoors, once they go into a, a unit of housing, we have a kind of housing that is designed for people who have intense vulnerabilities like mental illness, and it's called permanent supportive housing. And permanent supportive housing means you don't just put someone in an apartment and walk away. It means that you put somebody in an apartment with wraparound services, with case management, with a health worker who visits them regularly, with a mental health case worker who visits them regularly and ensures that they're able to stay on their medication, ensures that they're able to follow whatever protocols they need in order to stay as healthy as they can be. And that is the kind of housing with those services that I think really answers the call of somebody who is struggling with mental illness. I have even heard of cases where people who have been living on the streets for many, many years, their illness intensifies on the streets, they move into permanent supportive housing, they get the care that they need for a year or two, and then they're able to transition out of it. You know, I don't think it's that you always need that level of care, but that is the kind of care that you need initially in order to be able to support that person's journey off the street, for sure. Because ultimately, you know, a lot of homeless people are just looking for an opportunity to help themselves, right? A lot of the branding of people saying, you know, we need to help the homeless. They want to help themselves. They want to do the work, a lot of them. So it's just about giving them the resources so that they can actually get their own lives you know, back on track. Yeah. You know, being that we have this large economy, you know, it's in the state's best interest to clean up these streets because tourism is a huge business. You know, I think the only thing I've ever agreed with the last maniac in charge said one thing ever in his whole entire time that made sense to me, which is California is the most beautiful state and it's a mess. <laughs> and I, I agreed with that. It's in the state's best interest to clean this up because I really feel for people and I see these tour buses come and people have, you know, saved up all year and they want to come to Hollywood and they want to go to Universal and they want to go to Disneyland and they want to go to, you see know, all the celebrities' houses yeah, and all and the see things. Beverly Hills <laughs> yeah. and, and see all of that fun stuff. 
my heart breaks when I see them and think they must be so disappointed. You know, I can remember coming here when I was young, right after my mother died. I was like five years old. My father took us, me and my sisters, to California, right? He took us to Disneyland. And obviously, it was a super pivotal time in my life, so I remember a lot of it. I remember Lucille Ball came out on her front steps and waved to us as we wow. drove by in the tour bus. That's amazing. Totally aging myself now. Like, Telly Savalas came out and was waving to us. And, like, that was when you went on the studio tours and there were actors who would come out and say hi to you. And it was just, it was just this magical time, this week that we spent in Los Angeles that I would take with me forever. And... I think the same thing about young kids when I see them on the tour buses. I think they must be so disappointed and so confused when they drive through our streets, which could be so beautiful. And, you know, people save up and they want to come to this place where so many American dreams come true. And this is what they see. It's just so mind boggling to me that at some federal level or larger state level, that they don't care about our tourism and they don't care about the property prices and it just seems neglectful at a higher level. I think that that is true. To me, a lot of what we are seeing on the streets, and maybe I have to believe this because I'm a hopeful person. That's what brought me to run for the seat. I'm also, I think I'm also a very hard worker and I see the amount of work that's being done in the system to try and step up to rise to this challenge. So I'm not apologizing for it. I think we have a lot more work to do. We have so much further to go. It's also not your fault. We talked about it earlier. This problem, had it been dealt with 30 years ago, exactly. you wouldn't be sitting here today having to take a lot of shit, honestly. Like, come on. Yes. The problem predated me, and the problem is why I ran. And when people come to me with their frustrations, when people come to me angry, I tell them, this exact frustration is the reason I ran for this seat. And I am in here now, and I see that the system is so much more broken than I even thought it was when I was running for office. But I also know it is fixable and that we are making progress. So one of the things I want to really emphasize is that so much of the work that we're doing to provide mental health services, to provide substance abuse services, to provide outreach, even just basic outreach to go out there. Yeah, outreach is huge, like you were saying. Yeah. You know, we can really get ahead of it by having more outreach. Exactly. All of that is new to the system. It is new. And so it is just getting started. And we're, we are, you know, I am frustrated by the slow pace of change. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what makes me work all day. But when I talk to other people, I tell them I share their frustrations, but it's almost like you have to have patience and frustration at the same time. You know, it's like impatient patience. We need this to change. I will never lose sight of the fact that things have to change as quickly as possible. At the same time, I know how recently we have put these infusions of money into the system, how recently we have built up these new systems to be able to respond to a mental health crisis, which, by the way, started in the era of Ronald Reagan. When we disinvested in our big mental health hospitals, we were supposed to build community-based mental health systems in response to that. We did one piece of the puzzle. We disinvested in those big state-run mental institutions, and we never replaced them with anything else. And what we're seeing now, the devastation on our streets, that is a direct result of that failure of that investment. But now, again, for the first time, we have these multidisciplinary teams. Do we have enough? Absolutely not. Do we have enough mental health beds? Absolutely not. 
But are we working on building those year after year and growing that number? Is the solution, that services-based response, is it going to work? I really do think it's going to work. And encampments where I've worked for a long time, where I've interacted with individuals, I'm seeing some positive changes. But I think we need to see so much more and we have to see visible improvement for people to get really excited about what we're doing. And I feel that responsibility very keenly. You know, I want to make sure people have faith that the system can take action. And that's something that I'm actively working to build. It can take action, but it takes time. It does take time. But I think just listening to people and telling them, I hear you, I'm with you, and here's what I'm doing. Here's what we're doing to help this individual. You know, here's the journey that this person has to take in order to get off of the streets. And once they see the length of time and the amount of time it takes to help every single individual, I think people are a little bit more understanding of how much more we need to put into the system in order to make the widespread impact that we need to make. You know, inherently, myself included, people are selfish first, right? It's like, this is an inconvenience. I have to explain to my children why this man doesn't have pants on and is walking across the street. Empathy at this level, when it is at such a crisis moment here in Los Angeles, it really is in your Breaking face point. all the time. Yeah, It's this constant struggle of empathy and frustration. Yeah. You know, everything in life is balanced. You spoke about patiently impatient, right? Is that what you said? Impatient patience, yeah. Impatient patience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that because it's with everything. It's with parenting. It's with any job. You know, you may be frustrated with a coworker. It may not be moving fast enough, but there's a patient way to be impatient and still make progress and still get it done. So I love that as a life lesson. And I will say that I think this particular moment in America is a time when, before the Biden administration came in, when city governments, local governments, state governments were absolutely battered by the pandemic. Right. So what you're seeing on the streets is not just individuals who are suffering and individuals who may not have gotten the care that they needed for many, many years. But you're also seeing the fact that in Los Angeles, our Bureau of Sanitation cut their services for our district from five days a week to one day a week in response to budget deficits during the pandemic. And it's only in September of this year that we'll actually be starting to see a resumption of some of those services again. And so I think what you're experiencing, that frustration, that lack of empathy, to me, in many ways, that is really human. That's really human. And I think what I want to do is really make sure that we can do all the work that we can do to try and get rid of some of the, you know, we can pick up garbage better. In our district, what we did was we funded these LA Conservation Corps teams that come in and do additional garbage pickup in addition to what the Bureau of Sanitation is able to provide, right? Because I know that if you see bulky items lying on the side of the street or something like that, I think it closes off a little bit, your pathway to empathy. And what I want to do is open up that pathway. You know, I really want to open up those pathways. And I think doing better on other basic services is really important to making sure those pathways to empathy really remain open for people. Well, despite it all, you know, it's the most admirable thing about you, aside from your intelligence, is your optimism. You know, I think that it really takes a real strength of character and a strong constitution to remain positive and optimistic among all of these challenges that you face. And I think that once again, you've proven a theme 
to be true, which is optimism is always the way to go. It's always the fuel that you need to get you through. And I think you're evidence of that. Well, thank you. And um, Giacomo, I would turn this to you because I know you work directly with people who are experiencing homelessness. That's my background as well. I did a lot of volunteer work in it. And I didn't just engage with people who were unhoused. I also engaged with the volunteers who came out and served the people who were experiencing homelessness. And I think my work and my optimism that things can change and that we can do this right and that things can get better in LA is really based on my interactions with those two communities of people. And I don't know, I feel like I saw that when you were talking about your own experiences before too. Well, that helping people is just, it's so contagious. And I think, you know, when you work with organizations like My Friend's Place or the organizations that you're working with, and you can actually see, like Ellen was saying, boots on the ground, people helping people and the positive impacts you make, you could say, wow, like if we just multiplied this by 10, 50, 100, like, wow, like we could make such a big change. And and to see someone in office who is not thinking of homelessness as an afterthought is really refreshing. And I have a lot of compassion uh, for you and I appreciate this uh, conversation we've had today. Yeah. I mean, my friend's place, that's a topic that we didn't even get to touch on, which is the poor kids who age out of the foster care system, right? Is another just complete void of social services for children who turn 18, age out of the foster care system. I mean, if we take a moment and just think about that for a second. So you're a person who, for whatever reason, doesn't have parents or doesn't live with your parents or don't have family or aren't able to live with family, you're placed in a foster care system for essential strangers to take care of you. And then when you're 18, they no longer have to take care of you. You have no family. If you're not lucky enough to have a foster care family that cares enough, you're out on the street. And where do you go? Just think about that for a moment. If you're a girl who's got boyfriend problems or period cramps who do you call? You know, and kids in the foster care system, who do they call? So again, we can circle it back to empathy. Everybody has a story. No one has ended up homeless because they want to be homeless. People have ended up there because bad luck, mental illness. You know, I'm a big believer in addicts get a bad rap. I mean, that's an illness. And it's in mental illness, a lot of people who are addicts self-medicate. They feel things, they feel too anxious or they feel too low. So they do an upper or a downer. It's like, we just all have to remember that we all have a story. And some of us are more resilient. Some of us got dealt a better hand. Some of us have a better support system than others. And we should just, at the end of the day, just consistently try for empathy with those who are suffering and those who are trying to do something to help the suffering. Because for all the critics, I'd like to see you all get out there and dedicate your life to other people every day. It's not as easy as it is to criticize. So, Nithya, I cherish this time with you. I continue to admire you and I continue to support you. And I hope we can get Los Angeles back together to a place that we can be proud of. I truly believe that we can. I think I said this a lot during the campaign and I continue to say it in office. I really do think we can do better as a city. And I I want nothing more than for people, residents of Los Angeles, residents of our district, to feel proud of being residents here. And I think if we work hard enough, we will build the system that we need. We will solve this crisis. I look forward to seeing the fruits of your labor in the coming years that you're building right now that we have yet to see. Brick by brick. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great weekend, Nithya. Thanks again so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. 